Welcome to Geek Out with Angie Feather Sutton, an ongoing discussion on geeky topics. In my last podcast, I brought out one of my interviews from WonderCon 2016, the High Scorers panel, star composers of the video game world. While at the press room for that, I also had the chance to talk with some of the people at another panel, streaming success behind the scenes of your favorite binge-worthy shows. The panel discussed the original content of places such as Netflix, Hulu, and Amazon, and had some of the people that work on the various shows produced by them. My associate Hope and I first talked to composers James Levine and Sean Callery. Since it was held at the same time as the High Scorers panel, I unfortunately first assumed they were on that panel and asked about their work composing for video games. Jimmy Levine, Sean Callery. Um, in terms of composing a video game, um, I, it's obviously different than composing for a TV show or for a movie. Um, is it easier, better, uh, harder, dip, just plain different? How does it and how does it differ? I have I have composed I have composed for about three video games, but I will say the the short answer is is um, one style of writing uh, like what we do on TV is more uh, it has a singular sort of arc because no matter how many times you watch a scene, it's uh, the same length because you're watching the show. Whereas in video games, everyone plays at a different uh, level and speed, so uh, the music is more adaptive. Uh, the adapt meaning that the music has to be able to ebb and flow with the uh, ability of the player. It's just a different kind of musical writing challenge. It's fun, different. Uh, I enjoyed it, but I, I think I enjoy the TV world a little bit more just because I like because uh, uh, it's it's a finite thing, you know. Whereas there's some great music in games, so it's very fun. I'm a huge fan of the score for Jessica Jones. Actually, I thought it really it added to the like sort of noir detective kind of feel. Did you feel kind of like um, you were setting the tone for it as a detective story rather than a superhero story? Yes, it was real world. Uh, I didn't know anything about her. I knew she was a. Uh, I knew that she was a kind of a damaged soul, kind of kept to herself, stayed in the shadows. The very opening scene is her spying on a, a, a married guy. You know, she had a funny sense of humor. Hello. I'm sorry. <laughs> She had a funny. You know the uh, yes. Hello there. Uh, but no, it was all decided. It was kind of thought that we wanted to do like a neo noir kind of energy. And how would that sound? Well, no one really knows at the beginning how that's going to sound. But we shot an arrow into the forest of the best noir movies of the past, whether it would be Blade Runner or um, uh, Chinatown. You know, stuff. Detective, detective movies. And uh, and we just started there. And then we we dropped a few breadcrumbs to see what happens. So. And in terms of just uh, general composing, what do you find is the easiest part of it, the hardest part? I know, especially in, in Hollywood, you probably have, you have a very, very quick turnover. Sure. Um, like days, if not hours, <laughs> sometimes. You just turned yeah. over something today. Yeah. <laughs> so um, how do you approach uh, composing? Um, I just sort of uh, don't think about the deadline and don't think about the minutes and just try to immerse myself in the story as much as possible very quickly. I think I find that the music is actually sort of oddly the easiest part of the job. The hardest part is, you know, dealing with schedules and personalities. So if you can sort of try to lock that out in your creative process, and then it sort of then it sort of flows for me. And I'm sure it varies depending on who you're working with. But in mm -hmm. terms of feedback and input from from the creators, how, mm -hmm. how much control do you have over what ends up finally being on the page? And that can go for either of you. 
should I start? Yeah. Okay. I think that um, in most ca- cases, we have I have a tremendous amount of control. However, it is a collaboration, and it is a great it's a great collaboration. You know, I don't think I don't think everybody writes music for television and film because they don't. They don't want to. They can't have that musical communication that you must have, and that narrative sense as a composer for you know something scripted that you need to be able to uh, to bring to a project. Uh, I I have a fear that 90% of everything I do will be thrown out at first listen, and uh, and then you have to kind of calm down with it. I mean, with Jessica Jones, for example, it's a very new kind of sound, and we had to and and, and as as Jimmy says here, it's it's very collaborative. The, the best he is so right about the music being the least bit of the problem because when you deal when you lock in personalities and when you lock in schedules then you can it's sort of like a, almost defining the sandbox for playing in and uh, and then and then when uh, when you're really working well with people it becomes really enjoyable that's one of the joys of working on a multi episode series is that you get to you, the, the, sh- the story grows the, the relationships grow we were just talking about friends that we've made over the years that we've been working as in the industry. Those are very special relationships, and but it does start with that this process we're talking about. And, and hopefully, you build a sense of trust, which is very important, um, because oftentimes we're the we're the last line of defense before something gets on the air. So in many cases, we either we need to be able to trust ourselves and trust the story enough to say to a producer that maybe would be more inclined to have music somewhere. We're like, you know what, your story's really good. I think you should just let the scene go without music. Or they'll come to us and be like, we know this is not working. We need you to step up and make something out of this. And then that becomes our job. And you need to, you need to have a lot of trust. If you don't have that, then the, that's when the deadlines and everything becomes really challenging. Um, looking over specifically for you, you, you know, you've done American Horror Story and Glee. Yeah. So similar. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm a little schizophrenic like that. Um, yeah. In terms of switching gears like yeah. that, is that something that you find easy? Is it something that you kind of have to get into a certain mind space? I find it really great. I mean, I love it. I think that if I was writing one kind of music all day long, then I'd probably get pretty, pretty tired of it. And I think that there's something great about being able to write different kinds of music for different projects and to go back and forth because ultimately one will inform the other in some way shape or form and without the experience of writing a comedy you know you you maybe can't know what writing for drama is like and vice versa so and um, we cover specifically uh, sci-fi for me obviously genre mm-hmm. with American horror mu- uh, film horror music has certain tropes to mm-hmm. it um, do you try and ignore that do you keep that in your mind or you know do you just I think uh, consciously being, I, I feel like sometimes you're aware of it and ultimately I try personally to just do it a different way. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't, you know, but I think anytime you can take a trope and turn it on its side and have the same effect, it's much more enjoyable and surprising to someone who's viewing it for the first time. It becomes a new experience for them. In terms of influences, do you guys have any specific uh, composers that you uh, feel are, have an influence on you? Well, I was... Uh, for me, I was like a, a kid when Star Wars and Jaws came out. So I know it's a kind of down the middle of the, over the plate answer, but John Williams was really 
the first scores I heard of him were the ones that really kind of perked me up about being excited about music for film and Jerry Goldsmith, the movie Patton. And, and oddly enough, 2001 A Space Odyssey, that was mostly classical music in Ligeti, and, uh, but having it work against images was, uh, was very powerful. And even, I didn't even understand that movie because I was so young, but, but I, I was quite taken by the, uh, the, the power of it. I just, I just sort of knew in that moment I kind of wanted to do something along those lines, even though I didn't really have a clue how I would uh, get there because I was really only a pianist, a classical pianist at that. So that's, how it, that's, that's probably the first seeds of it for me. I would say also for me, John Williams, you know, when I was younger. And then um, uh, as I grew up, I think Ennio Morricone um, became, I was, a, I was a piano player also, but I was really into jazz and improvisation. And there was something very improvisational almost about the way that Ennio Morricone used harmony. And it was so, it was so beautiful, but you know, emotive and complex. I don't know, it just, it did a lot. It, it spoke a lot to me and Hans Zimmer, who um, I had the fortune of sort of apprenticing with when I was younger. Who else? I love Ryuchi Sakamoto. I mean, just some, you know, those for me are, are biggies. And I'm always a big fan of asking um, if, if someone were to approach you wanting to enter music composing, what would be your pieces of advice? Run. <laughs> <laughs> Just don't. Uh, man, if, if someone has a real answer for that, I mean, I don't know any him or anybody that has the same pathway for getting into this. Everyone has their own unique, odd journey for arriving at it. Um, it involves some sort of um, uh, commitment to, to, to the path of it. Like, you, you have to, it has to always sort of be an object of something you want and everything that you learn along the way has to be it lies in service to that I was a piano player at Epcot Center at Disney World I was an audio engineer uh, I was I had all these odd jobs I was a music director for Olivia Newton-John uh, but all of these things lied in service to eventually one singular opportunity to do some writing for a, a Christmas movie once and and there's just that moment where the opportunity is there and you hope you hope you're ready for it and uh, at a pragmatic level, I shadowed working composers, uh, one in particular, Mark Snow, who did The X-Files. And, uh, and that probably was the most educational couple of years in my, of my life. Uh, and so if you can get in with a young uh, working composer and study with them and look, learn their ways, I think that's extraordinarily helpful. I would echo everything Sean says. In, in addition to that, I would say that if you are as committed as you need to be, per Sean's answer, I think the other thing you need to have is sort of a tremendous amount of humility along with the sense of feeling that your idea of good music is no better or worse than anybody's idea of bad music. So if you approach it like that, you know, you're going to get slammed down and shut out and cues thrown out. We still do. We still have to deal with that. Um, but if you just trust your music and prepare, then I think you're going you're gonna to have as good a shot as anybody because yeah. nobody knows how it, how it goes, you know. Well, let me rephrase then. What, what do you wish you were told when you were getting into it? The one thing that you, you know, if you could travel back in time and tell yourself, hey, 
do this. I have like two practical things, which is really kind of, which I've only developed thinking about over the last, and I think it's because of the way we compose now, the way we write music, and the way we, we have to work. I wish that I had studied some guitar and some cello yeah. or violin, like, yeah. because I, you know, you, you have to learn that. But if I could play just a little bit, yeah. if I get, if I had spent like a year studying just like guitar and studying, I'd be I'd be a happy camper. My answer's kind of the same. It's just I was just at my old college in the Conservatory um, two three weeks ago, and I was in the old building, and I and I just realized I just wish I I studied more, you know, just because there were ways to I could have taken cello classes and, and I could I could have actually taken more instrument classes I could have studied orchestration more there's, there's just no end to the learning I mean so you can't learn everything when you start working but you always wish you had just a just keep learning yeah. keep absorbing that that would that would have been the advice I would have given myself in 82 83 don't stop don't rest on anything I don't think we did I just no. I just think you just you just 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 keep keep soaking it up mm. It's a job, but at the same time, there's got to be some fun in it too. How this is kind of a writer's block question, but not. How do you keep it fun in terms of you know that you don't burn out and that you don't feel like that's something that you just have to do to keep employed? Yeah. <laughs> we, 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 we've, been, we've been talking about this. We've been, we've been talking about this a bit, you know. I don't know how you deal with a, a block. Uh, I, I, when I'm when I'm, he was just speaking about deadlines and the pressures and things, and that those things can kind of intrude. I mean, for me. I have a couple of tricks that happens. One is that I do know that we can't be late in delivery, so sometimes I, I think I just sort of fast forward to the, the day after I deliver, even though I'm not there. I just know that that has to happen, so I know I know it will happen. And so I kind of briefly feel a, a fantasy of relief that I'm actually <laughs> over that over the hump, even though I'm nowhere near it. And uh, the other thing is I just have to walk away from the studio for a bit. I I, I just I just it's just when you're in a hole, stop digging. That's sort of the uh, that's sort of the advice I was given once. And if if it's not happening, get, just stand. Have the discipline to stand up and walk away, and, and then come back. There's no I unless if you have a secret, please share it. <laughs> no, no. I mean sometimes you just try to write through it. And pour and just keep attacking. Yeah. But other times you literally, I mean, you have to just like turn off the computer and walk away and just say, you know what, it's not going to happen. I'd rather. Sometimes I just come back the next. I mean, like just yeah. call it. Yeah. And be like, I'll start tomorrow. Yeah. And invariably, it's kind of like you just got to push the reset button. Sometimes. And when you come back, like the very first moment of that new day, yeah. you're automatically informed more. You're you're automatically yeah. higher up because you know, oh, you know. Or this wasn't bad, or it's like, yikes, I was way into the forest. So Yeah, I always try to, I mean, that helps because sometimes when you're stuck on something, it's not that you don't have it, it's maybe just that you're not perceiving or seeing a scene or a story the way that you have to see the scene or story to do your job, to fix it or to drive it along. So taking a step away, you know, allows you to like have a night where you're like, you might read a newspaper or read a book or watch a movie or see a TV show or see something that triggers this connection to what it is you're stuck on. I mean, that happens with me. And then I have an idea. I have a new, fresh perspective, and then I, I can apply that. You're geeking out with cinematographer Jimmy Matlows. Don't forget, you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at Angie F. Sutton. My next interview was with David Van Dyke, a visual effects producer on a variety of genre media. 
My name is David Van Dyke. I am the Vice President of Shade Visual Effects in both Santa Monica, California and New York, New York. Awesome. And um, in terms of doing special VFX, uh, what is the uh, hardest part of doing something like that? The hardest part of doing is uh, making it look real so it's not distracting. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that's something that Brian, the owner, um, and myself are always striving to achieve. Okay, that is really kind of the, the shade way. You know, we pride ourselves on invisible effects. And the idea is that if you're seeing our effects and they're becoming, that's, you know, a star of the show, then that's, we're not really doing our job. And we're here to support and tell stories. Okay? Um, we like storytelling just as much as the next person. We also love visual effects, but we don't want to be distracting or pulling away from that story. You know, what, you know, it's like I was talking with a friend of mine who's I've worked on a couple shows with, and he's, he's a uh, prominent post-producer here in town, and he uh, said, Hey, man, congratulations. Way to go on Daredevil Season 2. What did you do? Well, the truth is we did over 1,000 shots. It was something like 1,300 shots, you know. And he says, I know, there are some big ones in there, but there's a lot of stuff. I just don't know what you did. And, you know, that's everything from painting out wires to blowing up buildings to, you know, like in Ringside in, in Daredevil Season 2, there's a whole sequence. I don't know if you've seen it, but there's a, there's a sequence where uh, Daredevil is working his way out of an apartment building, and it's this, like, 40 or 50 shot seamless shot that's been all put together where he's punching his way out of there, whipping people with chains, throwing guys over the stairwells, and rebuilding, we're rebuilding stairwells, we're doing chains, we got CG weapons, CG muzzle flashes, you know, all that kind of stuff is in there, and it's just all that, plus marrying all these plates together, so it does feel like it's one. Um, that's okay. In terms of your toolbox uh, of approaching VFX, tell me a little bit of what you would say would be in your virtual toolbox of how to approach something like this. A virtual toolbox. Um, in terms of like software programs. Yeah, well, I. It's a lot of physical and it's a lot of computers. So I think there's a common misconception that everything is done in the computer. Okay, so there's a lot of guys that are in visual effects that are camera first. Okay, and we actually pride ourselves on having a deep understanding of photography. Okay, you know, we're not just in post. We're actually there from the very beginning in pre-production. Okay, we're. You know, it, it oftentimes part of the design, um, you know, especially when they're visual effects related. Um, and then we're there on set. We're you know, counseling the team, the directors, the uh, producers on how to shoot things, you know, working with the physical team to figure out the best ways to achieve these effects and keep them the most in camera. Um, and having that deep knowledge of photography lends its, always lends itself well to when you take it back to the computer to execute it that all of your stuff does feel real. You know, it goes back to that same thing of everything needing to feel real and it needs to feel in camera. It's critical, okay? Because then you get those candy-coated, strange-looking effects that everybody knows is an effect, right? You know, you, you know what I'm talking about. So that's our whole thing. We just, we don't want to be those guys. We want to be the guys that nobody knows we even worked on the show. You know, when you see the credits, what do they do? That's, the, that's like the ultimate compliment for us. If someone wanted to get into this field, what would you say is, you know, some of the tips that you would give them? 
Well, I think you need you want need to want to, to actually do it. There's a lot of people like you know we hire a lot of people. We hire a lot of young people, and they say they want to do it. But I think you need to be really committed to doing it. Um, I'm sure anyone in this panel would probably agree with me that there are a lot of people that think they want this, but they don't really know what it takes to succeed. Okay, or they think they want this, but it's really not for them, and they've kind of miscast themselves. So, which is fine. You know, that's totally fine. If, you know, it's not really what you're built to do then that's fine you know I'm sure there's something else but I think what's really most important is knowing what you want not settling for what you don't want and if you are on the path that you want you then you you need to be true to yourself and understand if you are cast properly in your career and in life and um Take me through, I know there's probably no such thing as a typical day mm-hmm. of, of job, but take me through some, you know, an average day of, of you know, what, what what you do in your, you know, day. What I do in my day? Um, well, a lot of my day, you know, we do work on, I do work with the shows and everything, but I'm now, you know, the vice president of the company, so it's a lot of running the company and running the visual effects. Um, you know, it's talking with a lot of clients, getting shows off the ground, setting up the team so that they can actually execute the work. Okay, so my day starts, a few emails, phone calls, you know, business calls, usually in my car on the way to work, talking with the New York office, um, and then I go into dailies at 10 a.m., and then, um, you know, I'm talking with the New York office from like 6, 7 a.m. in the morning, okay, because I'm here in Los Angeles. Um, you know, and then I get into dailies, and then we kind of see what what's going on with the day and dailies. And actually, I should take that back. Before we go into dailies, we have a every we, we have a morning meeting with just the production team. Okay, and that's with both the New York and Los Angeles offices because there's a lot of. Um, oh, I gotta do this, but there's a lot of there's a lot of work that is. Um, you know, a lot of work that is happening between the two shops. So we're making sure those both teams are on on the same page. Um, it is also um, doing the dailies, and then I get into the actual business and seeing what we need, whether it's, you know, all the facility stuff plus, you know, client stuff, financial aspects of it, and then carrying that through the day, taking meetings, a lot of off-campus meetings at studios, you name it, and usually working till about 9, 10 at night. In my next Geek Out podcast, I'm finally going to get around to editing a phone interview I did with character actor Stephen Toblowski back in 2014 when he was promoting his newest book, The Dangerous Animals Club. Until next time, stay geeky! Thanks for listening to Geek Out with Angie Fiedler-Sutton. Theme song is Schoolyard Haze by Yari Pitnikin, available via the Free Music Archive. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike License. More information about this podcast is available on AngieFSutton.com. <laughs>